Everyone calls them bad decision makers, when in reality, they don't have a good option to choose from. Uh, this same system uh, is perpetuated every time someone like myself moves to Boston and I'm told, don't cross Mass Ave on Tremont Street. Don't go too far down West Newton Street. Stay away from Alexan and his friends. Don't go to Dorchester, Mapp, and Roxbury. It's dangerous over there. What you end up doing is you segregate people first by circumstance, then by jail, and you punish decisions when, in reality, it's not the decision-making process that's wrong, it's, it's the options. Um, and that's important because when you start to recognize and define the system, there's a lot you can do to disrupt it. Welcome to Babson Bill, where we showcase Babson founders and entrepreneurs, people who have tried, failed, and tried again. They're the change makers, the disruptors, the hustlers, and the builders. These are their stories. Hi, this is Alex Carindia. On this week's episode, I sat down with John Feynman, founder and CEO of Inner City Weightlifting. ICW is a nonprofit organization that reduces youth violence by creating a community for proven risk young people to connect with new networks and career opportunities inside and outside of personal fitness. In 2016, ICW served 139 high-risk youths. Through ICW, these high-risk youths are able to learn personal training skills to build meaningful and sustainable careers. His students trained 373 clients in 2016, many working for Fortune 500 companies here in Boston. At the start of our story, John has just graduated from Bentley University and has begun a year with the Athletes in Service to America program through AmeriCorps. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with John Feynman. I saw myself staying involved in, in sports, um, ideally playing soccer professionally if I could, but more so than anything, uh, not getting away from the sporting world. And after I graduated, I ended up doing this year of AmeriCorps uh, in a program called Athletes in Service to America. And, and again, the reason why I did it was that not because I had this belief in, in giving back or, or doing something bigger than myself. It was honestly to, it sounded fun and, and, and wanted to build up my own social capital in, in the sporting industry. But uh, you know, I look back on that year and, and it certainly changed me and, and, and played a big role in, in who I am now. Let's dive into that a little bit. Are there any moments or experiences that you think really influence your decision or the thinking behind inner city weightlifting? I gravitate towards Alex and he was 12. He actually ended up dropping out of school the next year. Uh, everyone kind of was warning me about him and, and his brother and friends and, and family and they told me don't go near him to stay away they're too dangerous they don't care they're not going to change don't waste my time and you know, soccer ball rolls my way one day I do a couple tricks I kick it back I end up getting to play with him and a couple of his friends and and from there just this relationship started to form and, and I think it, there were three things that really stood out to me I probably couldn't have articulated the time but what it was was that I saw the overwhelming amount of segregation isolation that he and his friends faced I saw this confusion between lack of care and lack of hope. So everyone writes someone off if they don't care because you know they're not going to change. The reality is no one wants to lose their life to a bullet or jail, and, and yet they're willing to, to be there for each other, to support each other. And, and I saw this incredibly genuine form of care, and what I saw what was lacking was not care but hope. Uh, and that was empowering. There's something that I and something, more importantly, that we could do something about. The third piece and this is actually probably the most important. I definitely could not have uh, articulated the time, but I started to recognize the system, a system that drove me to go to college and, and eventually get my MBA, and the same system that drives our students to the streets. 
I'm born in Amherst, Mass., family and community with connections and opportunity. And I go to school because I don't know anyone who doesn't have a college education. Um, and everyone I know goes to school. It's my only focus growing up. I leverage an education, find a meaningful career, start a family of my own, born with the same connections and opportunity. And everyone calls me this great decision maker. In reality, I, I only had good options to choose from. Then there's our students, like Alexa, born into families and communities that are segregated and isolated. Unlike me, they have to worry about rent, they have to worry about food, they have to worry about utilities. There's no way that school can be your only focus when those are the challenges you're dealing with today because if you don't, then tomorrow doesn't even necessarily exist. So they take to the streets, and, and rather than leveraging an education to find a meaningful career, they find themselves in jail. They come out more segregated, more isolated. Everyone calls them bad decision makers, when in reality, they don't have a good option to choose from. This same system is perpetuated every time someone like myself moves to Boston, and I'm told... Don't cross Mass Ave on Tremont Street. Don't go too far down West Newton Street. Stay away from Alexa and his friends. Don't go into Dorchester, Mappan, Roxbury. It's dangerous over there. What you end up doing is you segregate people first by circumstance, then by jail, and you punish decisions when, in reality, it's not the decision-making process that's wrong. It's, it's the options. And that's important because when you start to recognize and define the system, there's a lot you can do to disrupt it. A lot of people face these types of realities when they go and do an amazing program like AmeriCorps or Teach for America. The large majority of them go on to begin their careers after this point and kind of lose touch with that reality. What drove you to really push further to a point where this was actually something that you wanted to address despite essentially everyone within your life, including the, you know, the very people who were bringing you on this program or AmeriCorps, telling you, this is too difficult, don't bother. So after that year of AmeriCorps, um, I made plans with Alexan to meet up at the gym and, and stay in touch, and, and that never actually ended up happening. I became a full-time personal trainer, went from an AmeriCorps stipend to making 120000 a year doing that, so that was kind of a nice change-up for me at the age of 22, 23. And I love personal training, but at the same time, at, when I was 24 and 25, I felt like I, I hit a ceiling. Uh, it, it was uncomfortable. I had 56 sessions in, in my book every week, and... and it's kind of at this point where is this just it? You know, I, I love personal training. I have next to no debt, and and you know this is incredible money for me uh, now. And and it just felt uncomfortable to think that this is just my life for the next fifty years. So I was talking with a couple of my clients, Anne and, and Francis. Francis is actually now the the senior vice president of leadership and strategy at Uber. And is, uh, her and Anne are two of the most incredible leaders I've ever met. And I was talking with them, and I think it was Francis that said, you, know, you strike me as more of an entrepreneur. And whenever Anne or Francis says something to me, I, I kind of just smile and say yes. So I started thinking about it, and, and I started talking about Alexa, and I started talking about you know, maybe there's a way to leverage weight training to work with Alexa and some of his friends, and, and specifically this population that we're otherwise told to avoid. And the more I thought about it, the more I, I decided that this was it. This was going to be the next move. So I, I started applying to uh, schools, and, and Babson, um, with the help of Anne Francis, was certainly my top choice and, and wrote my grad school essay about Lexan, what might have happened to him, about this idea I had, and, and uh, got in the one-year MBA program. And, and uh, you know, the summer, I, I kind of just focused on the summer and, and, and had fun. And, and then starting in the fall, it was just down to business and figuring out all right, I just went from 120K a year to 120K debt. Let's do something. So you get this entrepreneurial itch. 
do you know right away this is the problem that I'm going to address with my newfound entrepreneurial skills? Or was at that point, was it kind of a cloud of an idea of, okay, I have this experience, I have this entrepreneurial itch, this is my next move. What happens? Initially, it was very focused on the weight training side. It was focused on providing these elite weight training services um, that Alexin and, and his friends um, and, and more specifically the population uh, otherwise couldn't afford. And it was honestly, we talked about getting guys into the Olympics and college athletic scholarships, and it was everything you would expect a white guy from Amherst, Massachusetts to think would work. During my last semester here, we got a bootstrap pilot model off the ground. Just started off working with four four guys, and and you know, all of a sudden we start picking up traction. And, and you know, next thing we know, we've got twenty guys, and and now some we're working in some of the juvenile prisons. And, and as we're starting to do that, we start looking at it and, and start realizing, okay, we've got guys in wheelchairs because they're paralyzed from being shot. Uh, we've got guys going in and out of jail. We, we unfortunately have guys that get killed. And the idea that weight training is going to solve something it's it's ridiculous. Uh, what was working, though, was this text that we were sending Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday saying, hey, I'm working out at three, you want to come? And that was kind of the, the turning point for the model, is that we knew that in order to work with the population that we wanted to, in order to reduce violence, it was not going to be about weight training. It was going to be about communication and community. And, you know, we had this transition point after that first year where, where three of our coaches uh, left because they were very focused on weight training and, and they were absolutely right to be. That's how we started. But we, we learned quickly that if we really want to work with this population, it's not about weight training. It's about that relationship. So this idea of building a relationship, it kind of seems like the real pillar that you built everything off of. How do you maintain those touch points um, given the problems you've already talked about of you know trying to keep these kids away from the bad circumstances and trying to keep them involved in the community. What sorts of strategies did you use to really keep these kids in the loop to make sure that you were constantly in touch with them and basically making sure that they were going to be okay? Yeah, I think the sad reality is that you just have to hope that they're okay. You know, the, the lives that they have, the challenges that they're trying to deal with, the truth is we can't solve those problems for them. And, and we're actually doing our, our mission, our organization, society, and our students a, a disservice if, if we claim that we can, um, as we're just another group making a false promise. So instead, what we promise to do is be there by their side so that they don't have to solve alone. And when you do that and you combine it with this perspective of, of recognizing that you, in fact, do not know what's best, but our students do, doesn't mean you have to agree with whatever the decision is. But end of the day, they're the ones that are going to make the decision that they feel is best for them. And it's empowering in a way because now you can't solve a problem. You can't force someone to do something. So instead, what you have to do is listen. And when you listen and when you commit to being there by their side, now all of a sudden you can start putting more options on the table. And that's really what it comes down to is can you put enough options on the table? Can you make those options comfortable? Uh, so it's not just about putting options on the table. It's about making those options realistic and welcoming. And when you do that, you end up getting to be in touch with someone no matter what, because your job is simply to be there. It's not to solve. It's not to force something to happen. It's not to make sure that they're okay, but simply to be there so that if they are okay, that's great. And if they're not, that they're not struggling on their own. So what sort of early hurdles did you face with this type of program in that you really were dependent on people showing up and I know you've talked a lot about how one of their 
the greatest hurdles for them is finding ID cards and getting transportation and food security. So how do you how do you enable them to even get into the gym to be able to start your program? Yeah, and, and on top of that, our, our students have very real safety concerns. So they're generally not going to get on the train or take a bus because their lives are at risk. So we pick them up. We, we picked them up at their door, got them to the gym, and dropped them back off at their door. And you know, eight of the guys I was picking up had bolt holes in the front of their house. So this, they weren't making excuses for why they couldn't come. And it was interesting, too, because a lot of people started asking us uh, towards the end of that first year because we, we had gained traction and, and, and people started hearing about us. They asked, how, how did we actually get our students in the gym? Because a lot of people in groups had, had tried to work with this population before without much success, and, and we just kind of scratched our head and said, well, we picked them up. And like, you did what? And so we picked them up. And, and it feeds into another thing where a lot of people thought that was dangerous, and, and you're driving around with people in the car where you, you don't go down the wrong street. Um, so you also, part of that trust building is, is you ask them, I was driving one of our guys home uh, two nights ago, and, and I was going to take a, a left on the Malcolm X, which is kind of right on the line of an area where he can be versus where he can't. I was like, can I take this left or should I go around? And the first thing he says, how much he appreciated me asking that question. When you care about those basic things, <laughs> those, those things that you probably wouldn't, I certainly would never even have the ability to think about if we didn't start by listening. You're able to solve some really complex problems with really simple solutions. And you're able to, again, uh, create those ongoing relationships that allow you to do the work that comes after. There was a quote that I really loved from the ESPN piece that they did. Um, It was actually from Alexin, and he said, When I go to the gym, I just think about lifting. I don't think about the streets, doing dumb stuff. When I'm in the gym, I'm a different person. What sort of community have you built in that gym, and how do you think that influences the way that you're going to be growing this program? uh, So one of the pieces of feedback that we got that first year is how much our students appreciated being safe. So one of the things that we do when, when we meet up with a potential new student and do the screening is we make sure we don't mix rival groups together. No one wants to get shot. No one wants to end up in jail. No one wants to end up dead. And the reality is our students don't get a whole lot of time where that's not top of mind. It's not to say that when they're in the gym, that's not top of mind. That certainly can be, especially given whatever might have happened that day or, or, or the night or, or day before. But it certainly became a, a critical piece of, of who we would end up becoming uh, today and, and, and where we're going is, is to make sure that, if nothing else, our students are welcome in the gym, uh, that they feel safe, that if for even just 20 minutes they can be there and not have to look over their shoulder, then that's a great day. That's a great outcome. And it certainly creates logistical challenges and, and, and barriers to scale, but it also creates incredible opportunities to do some really in-depth work together and to help create these situations where people can feel welcome together, whether you're one of our students or, or one of our clients who's the CEO of a tech company. You're in there together and just as equals. And, and that tends not to happen. And it's certainly not enough for our students. Every entrepreneur starts somewhere. Are you looking for your beginning? The Blank Center for Entrepreneurship is where Babson's emerging entrepreneurs connect with the events, workshops, mentoring, and competitions that they need to build their businesses. This spring, the Blank Center will present its new venture competition, the Beta Challenge, which recognizes Babson businesses for taking action. Join the Babson community on Thursday, April 11th at the Beta Challenge finale. 
and watch the top alumni and student teams compete for more than $200,000 in cash and prizes. To learn more, please visit www.babson.edu slash beta challenge. Entrepreneurship is really hard. I think as someone who, who went through Babson and, you know, most of your classmates have either pursued or at one point pursued some sort of entrepreneurial venture. And we know the failure rate. We also know that, you know, doing entrepreneurship in a space that is generally underfunded, there's not a lot of capital available. Was there any point where you considered closing shop or, you know, moving on to something that might have benefited you a little bit more financially or what's your thought process? Uh You've always got concerns, you know, is this thing sustainable? <clears throat> you know, today is great, where will you be in six months from now? So you always have those concerns. I, I, I don't think, for me, I ever had a point where we're seriously thinking about we have to close up shop. I mean, I think part of what's always in the back of my mind is if we don't do our job right now, then eventually we, <laughs> we, we, will, we will have to. But it's more about what we need to do now, what we need to do today, what we need to do tomorrow to make sure that we continue to grow into the future. Uh, as far as my own personal finances go, uh, certainly, especially in the early years, I was making significant amount more before starting this, and, and you know, before starting this, I'm still making more than I am now. But as the organization grows, just because you do nonprofit work doesn't mean that you have to be in poverty yourself. I think one of the most important things is that we're, we're tackling challenges that multi-billion-dollar companies can't solve. So for us to think that we're going to solve this with a few pennies and, and not have to pay employees competitive salaries with what they could be making somewhere else, it's something that I'm actually kind of encouraged to see the nonprofit world going, especially as you, know, you talk more about social enterprise and social entrepreneurship, which includes nonprofits and for-profits, is that you can get away from the mindset of having to pay someone 30000 a year and expecting them to, to solve a problem that... Google, General Electric, and, and Facebook combined can't solve. You know, if we're really tackling these issues, the, the prison industry is an $8 billion a year industry. You stop one homicide, you save $17 million for society. You have to have talented employees. You have to have an incredible infrastructure to do this work, and, and you can create these incredible economic gains, not just for our students, but for society in general. And when you look at it that light, you know, certainly when you're starting something up, you're, you're, you're cutting costs everywhere you can, but that doesn't have to be the case, nor should it be the case. I think what really makes our model work is that by connecting our students and our clients together, you have all these people, uh, our clients, who have never known anyone that's gone to jail. Never mind someone who's supposed to be one of the 450 most dangerous people in the city. They get to know our students for who they are as people, and they see this social issue in an incredibly different way. And all of a sudden, what's happening in Dorchester, Mappan, Roxbury, not that it didn't mean anything for them before, but now they feel the impact. They know that for the students that we work with, it's not that consequences shouldn't happen. There needs to be consequences. But prison and jail, you're not going to solve a problem rooted in segregation isolation by segregating isolating people in prison and having that be somehow what fixes the problem. And we get so many people that end up sharing that same perspective that it does start to move the needle, uh, not just in terms of will this program work, but systemically, why am I telling all my friends to avoid a certain area when I might actually be able to introduce them 
to Tyshawn, to Joe, to Eric, to Angel. Or, or vice versa, bring Chris, bring Billy, bring Naki out, out to Weston for dinner. And so you get it going in both. So we, we uh, this must have been back in 2012 or 2013, we, uh, myself and, and a couple of our students spoke in, in front of a group of people and, and someone from Balpost raises their hand and, and asks one of our students, what, what's the most difficult part of his day? Uh, this is someone who's been shot twice and stabbed in the neck, did over five years in jail, defending himself from getting deported. He smiles and says, talking with you people. And everyone kind of laughs, and I start thinking about that. You know, I, I was laughing too, but I start thinking about that on the way home, and, and it, I realize that this is someone who would rather be in the same area where he's been shot, where his friends have been killed, where he's been locked up on, on several occasions, than dare walk into the financial district of Boston and, and feel unwelcome, feel uncomfortable, feel judged. So the importance of connecting our, our students and clients in these two opposite worlds. On the student side, all of a sudden now you feel comfortable going where the opportunity is, where the options are. Because even if those options and opportunities existed before, which in a lot of ways they didn't just because of logistics and, and, and a whole host of other issues, if you feel as uncomfortable as most of us might walking down whatever street of Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury that everyone's told you to avoid, guess what? You're not going there either. On, on the client side and, and, and the people who are coming from opposite socioeconomic backgrounds, we're able to put them in touch with the reality that they knew was out there but never had a chance to experience in terms of the challenges that people face. You have people that care deeply about what's going on, about street violence, about criminal justice reform. But if you're constantly trying to solve it among your own social circle of people who make seven figures and more, you're lacking the perspective that's needed. So we can actually give people an education and experience that they're not going to get anywhere else. And not only do they look at a problem in a new way, not only do they start to see new meaningful solutions to really complex issues, but they get a new friend out of it. Uh, these, these social circles start to merge together, and all of a sudden, you know, we've, we've, we had uh, clients this summer pay for the children of our students to go to summer camp with their own. So now the children of our students are, are all of a sudden being put in touch with new opportunities, and, and, and that's what can happen by bridging social capital, by, by allowing these opportunities that we all talk about being out there to truly exist for everyone, no matter what side of the street you were born on. To me, it seems like you have a lot of weight on your shoulders in terms of these kids' futures and you know them making it through the program. What weighs heavily on your mind on a Sunday night when you're ready to hit the week? We're fortunate now where we do have a great staff that has helped me get away from having to do a lot of the, the day to day. And with that, you know, what, what really weighs on my mind is, is, all right, so things are good now, but we're still not doing enough. You know, we're still not in Philadelphia. We're not in Baltimore. We're not in Chicago. We're not in Oakland or, or LA. There's a lot of things that we can do by expanding and, and not just other cities, but still in Boston. You know, we, we continue to have too much demand for our capacity. Because we can't mix rival groups together, we're only able to work with certain groups. We've got other groups that are interested and we can't work with them. And inevitably, you see people you know end up in the news either because they were shot or killed or because they're going to jail for a shooting. And 
you know, it's it's not to be a, a bleeding heart, and it's not to be this kind of too ideal and say, oh, we could have done something. It's it's fine that we can't, but it shows that the need is there. And I want to get there so that we can at least give it a try. We're we're not going to stop everything. We're not going to fix anything overnight, but to at least have the opportunity to give it a chance. That's what we're asking for. That's what we're trying to grow for. As we're able to expand, not just in Boston, but to other cities as well, ideally we start to really change narratives. And that happens more from our clients than anyone else. They go back and they tell their friends about us. And all of a sudden their friends, even if they're not coming to the gym, they start to think differently about who our students are. They're not thugs. They're not gang members. They're not criminals. They're Alexa. They're Joe. They're Almeida. They're people. And when that's the case, you push back against narratives that may not have been formed necessarily with bad intentions, but certainly are more destructive than constructive. Is that the ultimate mission of ICW, to change the narrative? Or is there a system-level problem that you hope you're tackling? And how does your vision for ICW in five years or even beyond that affect that problem? Yeah, so the system level is is we're combating segregation, isolation, and and everything that comes with that and and creates that. And and what we found is that the narrative is the most powerful way to combat that. There's no one today who can tell me not to cross Mass Ave on Tremont Street, partly because I live on the other side of Mass Ave on Tremont Street. But uh, when I first moved to Boston, I, I started telling other people the same thing, just because it was what I was told. I didn't do it with at least knowingly bad intentions, it certainly had a bad impact. But I know better now. And the more we can start to create that on the national level, which is really what's driving us towards that goal, the more you hit on that systemic change. There's no reason why people growing up on one side of Tremont Street in Boston uh, are going to River School. People growing up on the other side of Tremont Street are either not in school or in in underperforming schools and and more worried about food and rent. While that part certainly isn't okay, the the more troubling part is that they live across the street from each other and yet they avoid each other at all costs, and and not intentionally. It's because they don't know each other. The families aren't aren't connected. But all that starts to change once you get that connection. And and, and that's the part that there's always going to be income inequality. There's always going to be advantages and disadvantages based on the family you were born into. But why those families can't connect, why they can't go to summer camp together, why they can't be friends despite the fact that one group's going to river school and the other group is, is you know, struggling for, for rent and, and trying to stay in school, uh, is that starts to change. All of a sudden, you, you, you get the social capital that helps get you past those, those toughest moments. So that's the systemic factor. Um, that's the vision. That's, that's, our, that's our, our why. Walk me through the loss of Alexin and how that motivates you in you know, losing other students to incarceration. How does that motivate you to push forward on this problem? Doing this work, you're going to be part of some of the highest highs and, and lowest lows. Um, you know, one thing this organization is incredibly good at is keeping me very level. Because when I'd otherwise be feeling too good, I'm quickly reminded of... of, of uh, those tougher moments and, and uh, vice versa, you know, those toughest moments, you, you end up witnessing something pretty incredible too. At least for myself, as tragic as those times are, you also get to be around so many people dealing with the same realities that Alexan had to deal with that could very well have the same ending 
that Lexan had. And yet they're waking up every day and trying to create this third path for themselves that doesn't end in either death or jail. And I and we get to be along for the ride with them, and, and, and that part is incredible. It's not easy. It's not a smooth road by any means. But to get to be there, and, and, and now that we're, we're you know, soon starting up our ninth year, uh, to have seen some of the success and, and, and uh, get to be a part of some of the stories, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. You find your own personal way of, of dealing with the stress that comes with it. So for me, you know, surfing, it's, uh, I'm awful at it, but I love it. You know, I have no computer. I have no cell phone on me. Um, there's a few places I'd be happier. But once you give yourself that time, you're always reminded of, of why you love the work so much. As you're trying to shift the narrative as a part of your business, I'm wondering if you could send a text message to everybody in Boston with one you know, simple message about something that you wanted to get across to people to change the conversation, what would that be? So I'll start with the story and then see if I can stumble into the simple, the simple message. So one of our students is actually serving 10 to 15 years now for his third uh, gun charge. Uh, I brought him up to Sansom College. Uh, we are presenting a, a, a few different uh, criminal justice classes and someone asked him uh, a question about what he did that, that put him in prison and, and he says shooting people and this you know, white frat looking guy says shooting people or shooting a person and he looks at him like dead in the eye and just goes people so at this point you know everyone's kind of like holy crap this dude's this dude's real <laughs> then someone else asks him a question you know what what led you to this life and he starts telling the story about eating fruity pebbles for dinner and, and he thought it was the best thing ever when he was eight years old because he loved fruity pebbles uh, and then all of a sudden he's walking by his mom's room and hears her crying and and he walks in there and asks his mom why she's crying, and she says, because I couldn't afford to put any real food on the table. At that moment, he went to the streets to help his family. That was the moment that he decided that he doesn't want to see his mom cry anymore. He doesn't want to see his family have to suffer without him trying to do something to alleviate that. And you know, it starts off with you know, trying to make money by either selling drugs or, or kind of low-level theft, and, and all of a sudden you find another group of people who are dealing with the same things and then you bond together and, and you know, it escalates to gun violence and, and you know, everything after. And the reason why I say that is that even for someone who's now considered an armed career criminal, a, a, a thug, a gang member, one of the 450 most dangerous people in the city, this isn't something that happened for no reason. I, I think that when you start to understand the why, when you start to understand the context and the circumstances, you... you look at someone in a very different way. Uh, so I think if, if I had one simple message to, to text to everyone in, in Boston is, is find out why. Uh, challenge your assumptions uh, and try to figure out what were the circumstances that led to a decision that might not otherwise make sense. From an outside perspective. Thanks for listening to this week's Babson Built, where we showcase Babson entrepreneurs and founders. If you have a second, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We take feedback seriously here at Babson Built, and it helps other listeners find us. If you know a Babson entrepreneur who should be featured, email us at babsonbuilt at gmail.com.